Well, it is wonderful to be with you folks, and we have absolutely enjoyed the last two or three days here, fellowshipping with nearly all of you in one context or another, and uh, just sharing, making new friends, enjoying new fellowship, being encouraged. I, I was thinking of uh, Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about his desire to visit the Romans so that he could impart some spiritual gift to them and that they could return grace and encouragement uh, to him. And there's been some of that anticipation for us as we've looked forward to to being with you this week. Uh, Anxious to come and encourage and help in any way we can, but at the same time anxious to receive Uh, to be blessed and encouraged by you, and that is what we have tasted. So thank you. And we have uh, a lot to do today in this seminar, so we got to kind of get to it. And let me me, um, start by just just mentioning something that I gave some thought to not that long ago. I've uh, had the, uh, the joy of being a pastor for about 31 years, and recently I did the the arithmetic on that in terms of how many hours I have spent in the last 30 years in counseling and did all the math in my head, came out to about 10 to 15,000 hours of counseling in the last 30 years. And in 10 to 15,000 hours of counseling, I have drawn this conclusion that other, other than the need for fresh perspective on God and the gospel that people always have and bring into every crisis and every circumstance, other than a need for a fresh perspective on God and the gospel, the number one need that I address in counseling is communication. People in their relationships, whether married or not, in their parenting, in their being children in relationship with parenting, in their relationship in the church, people need to understand more of a biblical lifestyle of communication. Communication is is an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's actually where these two creatures, these, these, these creatures called humans, can actually exchange thoughts and they can exchange ideas and and dreams and and reason and emotion and love and and out of this exchange of emotion there comes a, a deeper sense of union and fellowship and communion and friendship and in marriage uh, intimacy and oneness where two actually become one. I think the cleaving part of leave, cleave, and become one flesh is is primarily communication. It's it's how the two human beings now interact with each other on a day-in, day-out basis in a, in a meaningful way. Communication, the art of listening and talking, can be either the glue and bond that seal us in our meaningful relationships, or they can be the knife and the saw that sunder us, that separate us in our relationships. James 3 makes it clear that the tongue can be a hellish fire of, of death and destruction that can wreak havoc. Or in the words of the proverb, the tongue can heal. 
and the tongue can bring life. It's, it's amazing what this little instrument inside of our mouth can do. It's, 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 am, it's amazing what communication accomplishes. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that you'd like to have some of your words back. I, I'm guessing that as you review your life and your relationships, uh, you, you are very conscious of things you have said that you wish you hadn't said. Uh, I'm, con- I'm guessing that in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationship to your parents, uh, just at those levels alone, there are, there are probably hundreds of words that you wish you could have back. I think that when it comes to communication, this is one of those areas where we feel the most amount of guilt, the most amount of remorse. We grieve, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. And, and, it, and it burdens us, and then Jesus kind of pours uh, e- extra weight on the burden when he says things like he does in Matthew 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. You read that, and if you don't tremble reading that, then you're not reading that. You will give an account. I will give an account for every careless word I speak. Every word matters. That can just, on top of the regret, that can add fear. That can add a sense of, well, woe is me. There's no hope for me if I have to give an account for all the careless words I have spoken. And it's kind of like the Isaiah experience in in Isaiah 6, right, where Isaiah sees the Lord and, and he says, woe is me. I am, I am lost for I am a man of what? unclean lips. It's very fascinating that when Isaiah the prophet catches a glimpse of the holiness of God, the part of his anatomy that he's most worried about is his lips, his, his speech. He, he realizes that he has a dirty mouth. And I don't think he was talking about a potty mouth. I think he was, he was just talking about the fact that his, his words, compared to the purity and the holiness and the, the glory of God, his words were just dirty. They were just, they were unworthy, and it filled him with guilt. But what did, what did God do through the angel in Isaiah 6? Anybody remember? The angel went and with tongs took a coal from the altar and came over to... Isaiah and touched his lips with the coal and and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. In doing that, God was saying to Isaiah, "Um, Yes, your lips are dirty and your communication is is dirty, but uh, I have provided atonement for you. I have provided forgiveness for you. I have provided mercy for you for you. I I really want us, as we begin this afternoon, to begin right there. Just, let's just, let's function, because you're going to hear things as we get, it's going to be very, you know, down to earth, nitty gritty, how how to do communication, but I'm suspecting that as we pile on these principles, the guilt is, you know, you're going to feel, I haven't been doing that, didn't do that, didn't do that, don't have a clue how to do that, and, and the guilt can overwhelm. And I want us to start from a place of, of confidence and, and boldness and a recognition that our sins are atoned for. Our, uh, Jesus has atoned for our sins, and that includes the sins of our mouth.
That includes the sins of our tongue. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, uh, all of our sins of the tongue have been washed away. We stand before God with clean lips. We stand before God with a record of perfect speech because every kind word, every gentle word, every understanding word, every thought-filled word that Jesus ever spoke has been imputed to your account. It's been reckoned as yours. You say, oh, I haven't spoken the way I should. Jesus did. And the scriptures say that his righteousness has become ours by faith in him. So his righteous speech, folks, is your righteous speech in the sight of God. And we stand at this moment in our lives from in a place of approval and acceptance before God. And from that place, we can take a look at these things. And we can, we can, we can look them right in the eye and, and, and not fear them and not tremble over them and, and, and not be overwhelmed with regret. We can just say, I am already accepted in the sight of God. I'm already approved in the sight of God. In the sight of God, I have a perfect record of speech and communication, now standing approved, how might I improve? How might I grow? How might I become more of what Christ wants me to be in the things that come out of my mouth? So with the gospel firm and fixed in our thoughts, let's, let's, let's dig in, all right? Let's, I'm going to give you, um, if you've looked at your outline, you're going to need that outline. You're going to need to lean hard on that outline because I get a lot to cover. And for the sake of time, uh, I want to, I've included a lot of the scripture text right in the outline, uh, as well as quotes and all, so that we can just keep moving along. And if you're looking at it, I think, I forget exactly what it looks like now, but I, I think you see the words, the letters C-O-M-M, all the way down, communicate. Uh, Years ago, as I began to collect the biblical principles of communication, they kind of fell together in this acrostic that we're going to be using today. Uh, And so we're going to just kind of work our way through this. Eleven of the more important biblical principles of communication that I want us to, to look at. Now, oddly enough, we're going to start with the last of these letters, uh, E, and then we'll bounce back up to the C. But the, the E stands for examine your heart. When it comes to communication, the first thing we need to, to do, particularly when our communication is breaking down and our relationships are hitting, hitting a, a bit of a rough sea, uh, we need to examine our hearts. In Mark chapter 7, we read these words from Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What Jesus is saying is that all the sinful words and thoughts and deeds you've ever done started inside. They were in your heart first and they emerged from your heart. So that if, you're, if your communication right now really stinks, it's because there's something rather stinky in your heart. There's something bad inside of you. Communication will either be good or bad depending on the state of your heart. 
in James chapter 4. This is, uh, uh, if this isn't a familiar text for you in, in terms of where to turn when you're having trouble in relationships, it needs to become such. Just, just listen to this. What, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this is pretty heavy text. All right, this is, this is approaching the topic of communication with a very kind of severe tone to it. We can feel a kind of immediate crisis of soul as we read this. Conflict, James says, is caused by what? By passions, desires, things we covet. There's a a kind of craving that goes on on the inside of us, which, when we don't get what we crave, what we want, what we desire, we go to war to try to get it. And, And what really makes this serious is that James says that when we act like this, we are being spiritually adulterous people. That means we're being unfaithful to God. And, and he says, we are making ourselves at enmity with God. We are, we are acting as if we are enemies of God. Now, we got to go to gospel again real quick right here. Um, because what, the, what this means, folks, is that when I'm fighting with my wife or with my kids or with any other human being, it's because in that moment I want something I'm not getting And I want that more than I want God and his will in my life. And James is saying, that's spiritual adultery. You're cheating on God. And in fact, you're you're playing the enemy against God. In that moment, you're, you're taking sides with the enemy. You're actually at cross purposes with God. God wants you to be this. You want to be this. Satan wants you to be this. And you're actually standing with Satan and God can look down on you at that moment and say, hey, I thought you were on my side. But in this fight, we are revealing, at least in that moment, that we're not on God's side. We're on our own side or we're on hell's side. Now, we need gospel here. Aren't you glad that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son? Aren't you glad that the fact that you and I sometimes function as enemies of God does not in any way make him an enemy of us? And it doesn't, it doesn't short-circuit his love for us, and it doesn't diminish his love for us. While we were enemies, he reconciled us to God through the death of his son. So James's words here don't have to fill us with alarm. They should fill us with grief, but not alarm. Because God loves his enemies and died for them on the cross. But there's a point here for communication, okay? And, and here's what I'm going to do. You have, I think there are blanks in your outline there for the main point of each point. And I don't know. I just, this came to me in the last couple of days in all my spare time. I just, I just felt like, 
you know, I'm going to do a little something different with these, with these main points. Rather than just give you a kind of bland statement, I wanted to wax poetic on you here. So each main point is going to be a two-line poem. All right? This may be absolutely corny, but I had fun in the process. So here, here's the first main point. Whenever conflict gets a start... Check for the God that rules your heart. Whenever conflict gets a start, check for the God that rules your heart. Whenever conflict gets a start, check for the God that rules your heart. See, the point here is this, that whatever is ruling your heart in the moment will determine your words in the moment. Paul Tripp has said this, whatever controls our hearts exercises an inescapable influence on our lives. What controls your heart has an inescapable influence on how we live our lives. And when you talk about what controls our hearts, we're just saying about what's our God. In the moment, you know, what, who are we serving? Who are we loving most? What are we loving most? Whatever controls our hearts exercises an inescapable influence upon our lives. You know, it's, it's a remarkable thing, this, this truth. What, what controls your heart will determine what you say. What, what you love most, desire most, are committed to most will come out in your relationships and in your communication and in everything you do. And we have, we have he's no longer with us, he's, he's now in heaven, but there was a man in both Galen's and my life, very dear to us, Mr. Chafee was his name. Uh, he directed a small Bible camp in, I was going to say up in Maine, but I have to say down in Maine from here, uh, where Galen and I met back in 1975. And Mr. Chafee was this dear, godly man, loved the Lord, loved Jesus, loved the gospel, loved teenagers, ran this camp for about 50 years. Just this, this amazing, amazing man. But in his last few years of life, he had Alzheimer's disease. And it, it pretty much took away virtually all of his memory and, and his capacity to to even recognize his wife. And it was, it was very sad, but there were, there were moments where there was this, this ex, he, he had experiences that, that highlighted this principle right here. For example, one time his wife found him in, they had company come to their home and, and he, he, she found him in the guest's car in the front yard trying to drive the car away and she's trying to convince him to to get out of the car come back in the house and and he won't do it he just he just determined he's going to drive this car until she finally okay what do I say to get him out of the car and back in the house this came to him her she said I said to him hon if you drive this car away that will be stealing And God says, you're not supposed to steal. He got out of the car immediately and walked inside. Because you see, 
down deep inside, there was still something controlling his heart. It was a love for God and God's law, which is why sometime later when he walked into their bedroom at night and saw his wife in his bed, not recognizing her, told her, you need to leave, I'm a married man. Just, just ponder the implications of that. Friends, what, what, what controls your heart exercises an inescapable influence on your life. Even when the mind might be going, there's something dynamic and real and mystical and mysterious that goes on in the heart and how it affects how you live. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. When what controls your heart is God and gospel and truth. But when what controls your heart is self and pride and cravings and desires, well, then it's a whole different story. What controls your heart will determine what you say. That's, that's James's point. You're fighting, folks, because you want things. You're craving things. You have a God in there right now that isn't God. It's a false God. It's an idol. It's, it's a God of your own making. But you've got a God in there right now who's controlling you. And, and because it's controlling you, you're arguing with your wife or you're arguing with your kids and you're fighting and you're yelling and you're screaming and you're sinning because you're not getting what you want when what you should want is the glory of God and obedience to the law of God and what God wants. But if you don't want that supremely, you want what you want supremely. Fights happen. You ever, um, I remember, I forget who it was. Uh, it might have been David Paulison or Paul Tripp or I, f- I forget where, where I first saw this, but it was extremely helpful to me. It was kind of like this, this slow motion or still frame look at it at an argument or at a conflict and and here's here's how it here's how it unfolds uh, an argument begins with a simple desire all right and let's just say for illustration's sake that i want a bowl of ice cream nothing wrong with a desire by the way uh john calvin once said The evil in our desires, usually, is not in what we desire, but that we desire it too much. Very insightful. There's nothing wrong with wanting a bowl of ice cream. So I want a bowl of ice cream. It's just simple desire. I start thinking about the bowl of ice cream. You're going to track with this, I think. As you think about the bowl of ice cream, it suddenly begins to evolve from desire to what? Need. I need a bowl of ice cream. You ever, you ever tracked with that? I, I need the bowl of ice cream. It it's somehow or other turns into something that I'm not sure I can get along without this bowl of ice cream. And then as it begins or continues to work on your mind and heart and emotions, it turns from need into something like a demand. I have a right to this bowl of ice cream. I have it coming to me. It's not just something I need. It's something I have a right to. And that evolves into something of an expectation. I'm going to have a bowl of ice cream. 
And, and I expect that I will receive that bowl of ice cream either from God or, in the case of this illustration, let's say from Gaylene, my wife. I expect her to meet this need, this demand that I have in my life. But for one reason or another, Gaylene either can't or won't get me the bowl of ice cream. And so my expectation meets up with disappointment. I'm disappointed. I didn't get the bowl of ice cream I wanted, that I needed, that I had a right to. And once we've experienced disappointment, the next step gets ugly. It turns into punishment. Because I didn't get what I had a right to, what I expected, what I was looking for, I am going, somebody's going to pay for this. You know, we do this with God a lot. When God doesn't give us what we want, when it doesn't turn out how we want it to turn out, we turn angry toward God. Because our expectations have been disappointed. You can, you can always write this down, folks, that when you're in an argument, when communication is broken down, it's because you have some kind of expectation that's been disappointed. And expectation is just strength and desire or craving. So, so what you have to do when that happens is you have to, you have to search your heart. You have, to, you have to figure out, okay, what's ruling my heart right now? What, what is it I'm craving and expecting and desiring that I want so badly that I want it more than I want God and I want it more than I want God's will and you identify it? And it could, again, be something very innocent. Wives, you want the love. You want the affection. You want, the, you want some attention from your husbands and it's just not coming your way to the degree that you desire it. And and sisters, it may be perfectly appropriate that you desire it. It may be perfectly valid that you desire it, but it's not coming your way to the degree that you desire it. And suddenly this craving for affection and, and love and tenderness that is left unmet, this expectation that is left unmet turns into disappointment and, and turns into punishment where you lash out or you argue or you men, you may be wanting the respect and the, and the, and the approval and the affection of your wife, but you just feel like I'm not getting the respect. I'm not, and there's nothing wrong with wanting the respect of your wife, but when you want it so much that you're willing to fight for it and argue over it when you don't get it, then what you have there is not a legitimate desire, but a false God that's ruling your heart. You following that? That's that's what James is about here. Um, And that's why why I start here. here, I believe we need to to examine our hearts. And and, and it's very practical. And and all these principles are going to be intensely practical. Um, This isn't just some kind of, whoa, that's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. No, this affects how you do life. Uh, and you can actually apply it right in the middle of an argument. So you're, so you're arguing with somebody, your communication is, is, is completely broken down, and you're just fighting it out. Somebody has to, in the moment, say, all right, obviously I'm sinning. Why am I sinning? Why am I quarreling? Why am I fighting? Because I want something I'm not getting. Now, let me pause and figure out what it is that I want that I'm not getting that has taken the place of God in my life right now. 
And let me get alone by myself somewhere so that I can do business with God and I can confess my idolatry and my enmity and my spiritual adultery to God, ask his forgiveness, come back to the conversation and say, hun or friend, I need to ask your forgiveness because in these recent moments, I have been wanting something more than I've wanted God's glory or your good. And I've been going to war with you over it. Please forgive me for that. It has a remarkable effect on a relationship. It kills the argument in mid-flow, changes the whole dynamic of the relationship and leads toward healing and peace. I, I know of couples, I've done counseling with couples, I said, just do that. You're in the middle of the argument, just stop the argument because you, you both know, as Christians, you both know, you're sinning right now. Go apart somewhere, do some business with God, find out what the idol is, confess it, ask forgiveness for it, Go back into the conversation and see what God does between you. That's, that's called examining your heart. It's, it's, it's making sure that when you're in the midst of the bad communication and the arguments and the fightings, you have, you've torn down the false idols of desire that are in your heart. You've restored God to his rightful place. And then... You begin to speak out of that restored sense of the supremacy of God within. And you begin to speak God and grace into each moment, into each relationship in your life. So I say that's foundational. That's why I kind of bump it to the the top. Because it it is out of the heart that all this other stuff either will or will not happen. So let's, we just start there with examine your heart. Now, let's go back to the top. All right. C stands for chill. Do, do you, did that work its way north of the border here? Chill? All right. It, if it didn't, you, you want to go with calm down or compose thyself. You know, whatever works for you, use it. But chill, calm down, compose thyself. A failure to chill... It's like pouring fuel on the fires of our conflicts. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 15, 1, you know this verse, I'm sure. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That word soft means a, a tender, gentle, kind of innocent answer. Just, it's, it's just an, an innocent, gentle answer turns away wrath. What, what Solomon is telling us there is to chill. Just in the moment where, where there's conflict about to explode or erupt, chill. G- gain control over your emotions. Ephesians 4 and verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul Paul is telling us to chill here. And he's telling us to chill by forbidding us to engage in five or six very hot-headed sins here. 
He talks about bitterness. Bitterness is, is when your anger toward another person, your hurt and your offense with another person has soured your perception of that other person so that you can't look at them, you can't think of them without a sour taste, with, without a dark reflex or instinct in your heart. That's, that's bitterness. And Paul says, don't be bitter. He talks about wrath. The Greek word speaks of a passionate anger and inflamed emotion, attitudes and words and actions that are emotion generated and fueled. He says, don't, 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 you know, be done with wrath, be done with anger, be done with clamor. You know what clamor is? It's basically yelling. He's saying, he's saying, don't have angry outbursts. Don't, don't, don't give in to yelling loud anger. It's not always wrong to be angry. Ephesians 4 talks about that. Be angry, but what? Do not sin. Do not sin. One of the sinful dimensions or demonstrations of anger is when you yell. It's not always wrong to be angry. It is always wrong to yell. Yelling anger is forbidden. It's, it's, it's not chilling. It's exploding. It's Mount St. Helens. It's an eruption. He talks about slander is a misunderstood one. Uh, slander is, it doesn't have to be untrue to be slander. Slander is anything negative you say about another person, whether true or not, that injures that person's reputation. S- slander is whenever I speak of someone's badness, unless it is necessary for someone's good. Slander is whenever I speak of someone's badness, unless it is necessary for someone's good. That's, I believe, biblically what slander is. And Paul says, Paul says here, chill. And malice, you know what malice is? It just mean-spiritedness. It's just out to hurt other people. Paul says, chill. He says, calm down. Be, be slow to anger, James 1 says. James 3 says, be, the wisdom that is from above is peaceable and, and gentle. Um, key component of biblical communication is the capacity, the self-control to, to chill, to calm down. So he, here's poem number two for the afternoon. To keep from war... In little spat, turn down the anger thermostat. To keep from war in little spat, turn down the anger thermostat. I don't know. Maybe totally corny, but it was fun to try to do. We have our little spats, right? A spat is, we disagree. We just, you know, we, and it may create an initial reaction of some sort, but it's, it's not a big deal. Every, every relationship has moments where there are little spats, but, but how do you keep from war in the little spat? Well, you have to turn down the anger thermostat. You, you, you have to 
be slow to anger. You have to have a spirit-given ability to restrain your emotions and your words so that you can stay peaceful and calm even when the storm hits. Here's, a, here's a, um, what I call a God and gospel moment. This is, this is the glory of God. I, I don't know if you ever put this together. I remember seeing this for the first time and it just kind of, whoa, moment for me. Remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory? And, and God said to him, well, if I showed you my glory, you'd die because no one can see my glory and live. But then a few verses later, a little while later, God says, well, I can't really show you all my glory, but I will, I will show you just the, just the outskirts of my glory, just, just, just little glimpses of my glory. And, and he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and then God passes by. And as, as God passes by, he, he says to Moses these words, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now I want you to put it together. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And, and God said, okay, I can't show you my full glory, but I can show you some of my glory. So Moses gets a glimpse of the glory of God. And what is it that he hears and sees and senses when he's looking at God's glory? He sees, he hears, he senses the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. One of the most glorious things about God is that he is slow to anger. He is patient. He is gentle. He has a long, long fuse. He is never impulsive. He is never reactionary. He is never volatile. He is never rash. He is never explosive. All of God's responses to our sins are slow and steady and predictable and unwavering and calm. It is the glory of God that he is long-fused and gentle in response to human sins. So when we talk about chilling and being long-fused, what we're talking about is reflecting in our relationships a bit of the heart of God and the character of God. This is how he treats us. And we need to treat each other similarly. We need to chill. Chilling is a choice. Chilling is a choice. Um, I, I love asking people this question. How long do you think you can go without losing your temper? Any answers here? How long do you think you can go? A month? Anyone longer? Anyone think they can go longer than a month? As long as you choose. That is the right answer, absolute truth answer. How long can I go without losing my temper? As long as I choose. As long as I choose, as I am indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, I can go on choosing and choosing and choosing and choosing and choosing. 
to chew. I think we know this instinctively, but somehow lose it, don't we, in the heat of the moment? Um, I've, had, I've, I've encountered this truth in my own experience. When I was, when I was young, when I was 14 years old, I had a, a nasty temper. I, I was always yelling at people, always screaming at people. I love sports, and uh, I love ping pong. I could whoop any of you in ping pong. I, I, uh, well, maybe not. I, I was going to say I grew up in Japan, but I, I do see some Chinese folks here, and uh, uh, maybe I better just be quiet on the ping pong. Let's go tiddlywinks or something else. But I, 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 I love ping pong, and... Um, I was pretty intense about it, like the time when my older brother beat me and, uh, in ping pong and I just took the paddle and just smashed it over his head and the thing just fell apart in my hands. Um, or the time I... There are children here, so I have to be careful how I tell these stories. This is not what you're supposed to do, okay? Uh, kids, you know... Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, don't do this at home. Don't do this anywhere, all right? Uh, I, was, I was an angry young man. I played tennis, and I don't know how many tennis rackets I broke. And I would yell at my, my fellow teenagers in our youth group, and it was, it was just an ugly scene until one day Bill Levely, in our youth group, Bill walks up to me and, and says to me, Tim, do you know that no one in the youth group likes to be around you? I said, what are you talking about? I thought it was Mr. Popular. You know, I just thought I had, you know. And he said, well, you are always so angry that everyone just wants to stay away. I thank God for Bill Levely. I went home that night. I laid in my bed and I thought about this. What am I doing? How am I living? Is this, is this how I want to do my life? And God moved in me powerfully in that moment, that very night. And I resolved by the grace of God that I would choose to chill. And, and I'm here to tell you that was when I was 14 and I'm 54. That was 40 years ago. And I, my wife will bear witness to this. I haven't had... 10 temper tantrums since. Um, I, I'm a chilled guy. I'm not saying I haven't sinned in anger. There are other ways you can sin in anger. But I haven't yelled and screamed and hollered and ranted and raved. And I think my wife and kids are glad for that. But it was a choice born out of a challenge. I don't know what Bill Levely's motivation was. I don't know if he was trying to make me feel bad or really cared for me. I don't know, but I know what God's motivation was. God was after me that day. He wanted to change me. He wanted to make me aware that, that chilling was a choice, that this was something I could do. This was something by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God I could change. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, you can too. You can too. I, was, I went into a house one day. I got this phone call from this, the, the actually senior citizens. They were in their 70s. This was a couple that were troubled in many, many ways. But I, I had to counsel them over and over again through the years that I knew them. And one day I got this phone call from 
uh, Ted was his name, and, and Ted said, you know, Pastor Tim, you've got to come over here right now because my wife is going absolutely berserk. She is hysterical, and I could hear her in the background. She was yelling and screaming and hollering, and, and I said, whoa, I, I, all right, I'll be over. So I'm going over, and I'm thinking that, and, and, and again, troubled person and, and uh, many, many hardships and difficulties. So I knew a little bit of what I was stepping into. And I'm thinking on the way over, I'm thinking this may be the first time that I've actually had to call an ambulance and have somebody come with straitjackets because it was, it, was, it was serious. I could tell it was serious. I walk into the house and this woman is over in the back corner, like where that bush is, and she's She's hunched down behind the big bushes in her living room, and she's screaming, and she's hollering. And you would, I'm, I'm Lord help, I don't know what to do, you know. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, have the phone ready, going to have to call. Uh, but before I did that, I walked up to Claire, and I just, I just, you know, imagine me, I was probably 40 at the time walked up to this 75-year-old woman, kind of put my hands on her shoulder, and I said, Claire, be quiet. Complete calm. In less than five seconds, she was sitting calmly on the couch. She could have chosen that any moment before. Chilling is a choice. You know this to be true because you've experienced it. You're at home and you're in an argument with your husband or wife or kids and the yelling is going on and the argument and tension is building and all of a sudden the telephone rings and you answer the phone. How do you answer the phone? (laughs) You are in mid-sentence yelling at your kid, the phone rings in mid-sentence. You go from yell to hello. (laughs) Instant self-control. Instant self-control. This gets back to that heart thing we were talking about, folks. What rules your heart controls your mouth. You see, a moment before, what was ruling your heart was a desire to vent, a desire to get even, a desire to lash out, a desire to, it might even, will this kid finally listen to me and obey me? Whatever the desire, it was ruling you and making you sin. The next moment, what was ruling you? A desire that your reputation not take a hit. A desire that nobody else knows that you throw temper tantrums. Your reputation, your pride, your ego motivated you to instant self-control. What rules your heart has an inescapable influence on your life. What it means is that we actually have control over what rules our hearts. And we can make choices out of that. How long can you go without losing your temper as long as you choose? As long as you choose. Empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God. You can go a long time without losing your temper. Chill. Just chill. Oh, there's so many applications to that, uh, but let's move on. O is 
open up, open up. We'll take another five or eight minutes here and then take a break. Open up. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Each of these texts calls for real open, honest expression of what is on your mind and in your heart. Open up. Communication demands this. So here's poem number three. To hide the heart and spirit close. To hide the heart and spirit close does far more harm than we suppose. To hide the heart and the spirit close does far more harm than we suppose. We must learn to open up our hearts and speak our thoughts, our hurts, our dreams, our joys, our sorrows, our spiritual condition, our needs. The The reality is that God does this with us. It's, it's just one, when we think about communication, it, 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 is, it's a, it turns it into theology. It turns it into worship. When you stop to think about the fact that God is a communicating God, God talks. As soon as he made Adam and Eve, he, God opened his mouth and started talking to Adam and Eve. He, he opened up. He disclosed who he was to Adam and Eve and what he wanted from Adam and Eve. God is a speaking God, a communicating God, a a relating God. He shares his hearts. He shares his thoughts. He shares his plans. He shares his goals. He shares his desires with us. In John 15, Jesus says to, to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Brothers and sisters, it's a wonderful thing to walk through life on planet earth, not in the dark, to to have a clue, to to have some sense of light for the path that's in front of us, to have some sense of reason and purpose for why we are here, to have some understanding of what God is up to. Even though there's much that we don't understand, we understand enough. There is enough there. God has opened up to us. He has, he has revealed to us as, as a friend does to a friend who he is and what he is like and what he has in store for us and what he has planned for us. So it's a, it's a part of God-likeness. It's an aspect of being made in the image of God that we open up, that we share, that we, in all of our key relationships, open lines of conversation and we actually talk. Talk flows, it runs freely. It's a major cause of relationship breakdown that people fail to do this. And it's sad. We don't talk too often. Too often we open up, we, we don't share, op- or we don't open up, we don't share openly and honestly what's in our minds. I, I saw a couple in counseling for months, actually I think it went on for years. I'm not sure I would do it the same way again, but it's what happened. Just 
time after time sitting with this couple and time after time, here's, here's what unfolded. The woman sat there with this angry, bitter countenance. Every word had, had poison in it. The man sat there confused, confounded, had no idea what to do or say next. And this went on time after time. And finally, this one time, I just, I, I, I just I kind of looked her right in the face. I said, I said, is there something that you haven't told us that your husband has done to you that is filling you with bitterness and rage? Something, something that's never come out yet, something that you can think of that is that may be the, the core of this or the source of this rage toward your husband. And it was just the moment where it was supposed to happen where she said, yeah, there is, there is. Twelve years ago, twelve years ago, my husband made me make a decision that I did not want to make and I've been bitter with him ever since. He looked at her and said, "Hun, that is the first time you have ever said that. For 12 years, she had held him hostage to a decision he had made, never once telling him why she was mad. Have you ever said something like this? If you don't know what you did to make me mad, I'm not telling you because you should know. You ever said that? Thought laugh? Um, that is, how do I put this nicely? How do I communicate this with love? That is, that is really, really, really foolish. <laughs> I, I, I know situations where husbands pleading, please tell me. No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. You need to figure it out. The husband wants to know. Goes vice versa. Goes the other way around. Open up. Talk. Share. Speak. Be transparent. At a couple, this I didn't have this couple, but I was. I remember reading about this couple. They, they got came into for marriage counseling, and it was crisis time. Um, the wife was was in despair and ready to quit, and she just blurts out, "My husband's cheating on me." And the husband looked shocked. The counselor was shocked. And, and the counselor asked the, the, the wife, well, why do you think this? I, well, I know, I, know, I know he is. What, well, why? What, what's your proof? She said, well, you see, I, I keep track of the money in our home. And I know that uh, there's supposed to be a certain amount of money coming in. And for the last several months, this money has not been coming in. And I, and I know he's spending it on another woman. And the counselor turned to the man and said, well, what's, what's going on? And the man reached into his back pocket and pulled out his wallet and pulled out a wad of money from his wallet and showed it to his wife and said, I think this is all the money you're talking about. I've been saving it for our anniversary. True story. True story. Think about it all the breakdowns in communication that had to have led to that moment. But think about how if at any point previously one or both of them had opened up 
how it never would have gotten to this place of crisis. Are you hiding something that those that are in your life have a right or need to know? Are you, have, you, have you clammed up? And this isn't just about offenses and hurts. This, this is about dreams and who you are and what you want to be and how you want to live and uh, how you want to serve Christ. Just, just open up. I was talking with someone recently who, who spent a whole day with a, a, a pretty significant Christian leader. And, and when he was with this man, he said the man was, was incredibly attentive and kind. And you just felt like you had his, his undivided attention. But then, then my friend said, you know, I thought about it afterwards. I spent an entire day with this man. And at the end of the day, I didn't know even one more thing about that man than I did at the beginning of the day. He said nothing. He disclosed nothing. He opened up nothing about himself. And my friend just walked away feeling there's no relationship there. There's no bond there. I appreciate that he cares for me, but where's the openness and the Where's the relationship? I was, I was, uh, I've been recently involved in a mediation situation uh, and um, have had to spend a lot of time assessing and evaluating uh, a brother in the Lord and in his relationship with other brothers. And, and, um, and this has not been fun, believe me, but I've just had to work through this process. And, and recently I sent this, this brother an email And I forget what the main part of the email was about, but at the end of the email, I just included this. I said, hey, brother, by the way, would you please pray for me? Because I, my headaches have really been acting up the last few days and they're, they're, they're distracting me a bit. And, uh, you know, I just appreciate your prayers. This was his response. He said, Tim, I am praying for you. And Tim... Thanks for inviting me in to care for you like that. Thanks for inviting me in. I I didn't even think twice when I asked him to pray for me. But by that transparency, by that openness, this man who had been keeping me a bit at arm's length because of the the challenges and stresses of of the situation... This man drew nearer to me because I opened up in a very simple way to him. It's remarkable. And in subsequent interaction with him, there is, I think, a distinct difference in the tone and in the relationship between us. It's simply because I asked him to pray for me, opening up. Well, let me give you... Now, let's pause. Let's pause here. I don't want to... I'm going to overload you one way or another, but let's see if we can do this in, in fairly even loads on you. So how about uh, two, two or three minutes? Any questions to this point?
Uh, so the question, in case you didn't hear, is when you're examining your own heart and you're in a, you're in a conflict or in a situation where, where you still believe the other person is wrong, um, how do you stay true to that conviction whilst evaluating your own, assessing your own heart in that moment? I think the first thing you, you want to be attentive to is how you're responding to the moment. If, if you are feeling anger, if you are feeling uh, uh, bitterness, if you are lashing out, if you are arguing, then I think you have to lay aside for a moment whatever he's wrong about because you're wrong about something. All right, and we'll talk about that a bit more later. You want to deal, first of all, with your own heart and with your own spiritual condition. You know, it's, it's Matthew 7 you know, before you try to take the speck out of somebody else's eye, take the, the two by four out of your own eye. Um, and so you have to, uh, you know, you have to work on your own heart, get that into a better place where you are no longer arguing, no longer quarreling, no longer fighting, and are able to speak with peace into the moment. Jesus does say in Matthew 7, once you have taken the speck out of your own eye, you can then help or once you've taken the moat out of your own eye, you can help the brother take the speck out of his eye. So there are times when we have to help people. There are things that are going on wrong in their lives. We have to help them. But always, always clear your own eye first. Always clear your own heart first. And be measuring your emotional response, your verbal response to that person. Because what may happen is you may have a legitimate desire that that person understand what they're doing wrong and change. But if you desire that so much that you're willing to fight to get it, then you've turned that desire into a, into a God. Your desire, your ruling desire should be the glory of God in every single thought, word, and deed that comes into your life or out of your life or out of your heart. And if you... You can actually desire the glory of God so much that you fight with people because they're not glorifying God. And that, I mean, my experience in church life is the people most often who get most mad are the people who care the most. Often has happened. They just care. <laughs> they, they care about people. They care about the church. They want things to go well. They want God to be honored. And they don't realize that they're throwing a temper tantrum because they care so much. Uh, uh, but, it, you know, our hearts can do that, can't they? They can, just, they can turn good things into idols just like that. And we're subtly being ruled by something other than God himself. And so check out, examine your heart, see what's ruling you. Confess that, deal with that. Then return to it. Not saying don't return to it. Truth has to be spoken, but return to it in the right spirit and with the right heart. All right, all right. Let's take let's take a five or ten minute break here and uh, return about what is it? Nineteen of. Let's let's aim for ten of. Okay. Ten two. That means. Ten two. Canadian language. All right. <laughs>